How are we doing? Good. I got some okays, some greats. Good to see you guys. My name is Rob. Good to be back with you. I'm our teaching pastor at Franklin Campus. For those of you that I haven't had a chance to meet, I recognize some uh, few familiar faces in the audience. I've been looking forward to being back with you. And, uh, you know, it's interesting how we divide the text between the teaching pastors, and sometimes we get the question, you know, hey, can, can I know when Michael's preaching or when Lloyd's preaching or when so-and-so's preaching? And we say, no, you can't know, because we know what you'll do if you know, right? Um, but yeah, there's, so there's this big smoke and mirrors process for how we divide the, the passages up. And I've noticed that I've kind of been getting like the bad text, like the short end of the stick. So, you know, and I started complaining about this. So uh, Lloyd threw me a bone. He goes, okay, I'm going to give you this passage tonight. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind, your soul and strength. And I said, thank you. I finally got a great text. And I started diving into it. And I said, the problem with a great text is then as a preacher, you feel this pressure to do justice to it. And you can't do justice to the text that we have tonight. But I, I did think of an analogy that I wanted to tell you all. This is what I think it's like to preach God's word. I think it's a little bit like being a tour guide at a great national park. And so you know some things, you've studied some things, maybe you've spent a little bit more time you know, around some incredible view or some vista or some natural phenomenon that then you're telling other people about. You're like, just like you gotta look at this. Like, this is amazing, this is incredible. And if you do a really good job as a tour guide that people go home, they understand better but they never go back and say, oh my goodness, that tour guide was amazing. No, they, they talk about the mountain or they talk about the canyon or they talk about the view. And so that's my hope, my desire for tonight. Now, I want to take this analogy one step further and actually say where the analogy breaks down is this. When you go to a, you know, a national park or you know, you're going to go somewhere you've never been before, you're going to get a tour guide, you're going to hope to see some amazing things, you don't expect to be really changed by it. You just expect to enjoy it, sort of to consume it in a way. And so tonight, what I actually want to challenge you to do is I want to challenge you to do more than just to consume the sermon or consume even the passage of Scripture. I, I, I believe what happens through studying and reading God's Word, even the act of preaching God's Word, is the Spirit is re-speaking the text that the Spirit authored at the beginning. And so as I read it tonight, as I teach it tonight, that's going to be my prayer is God's word, which is alive, right? Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living. Like it's alive, it's active. That means it actually does stuff. It changes things in you. That's going to be my hope and prayer as we go through the text. So if you haven't already opened your Bible, open up to this remarkable view this remarkable text, it's in Mark chapter 12. Lindsay already read it for us. I'm gonna go back and reread it. It's not a long text tonight. I wanna take some time to unpack the verses, but I'm gonna to try to save as much time as I can on the back end to apply it because I think there's some explosive power in this text because it's one of those texts that sort of digs down deep underneath your heart and I think wants to do its work there and then up and out. So that's where we're gonna go with the text. Now, let me uh, give you a little bit of context. As you know, if you've been tracking with us through the series, this is the very last week of Jesus' life. So he's in Jerusalem. By the end of the week, he's gonna be dead in Jerusalem. Friday night, he's gonna be crucified. And between the time he enters and then the time he dies, he keeps going in and out of the city. And every time he goes in, he begins teaching. And his teaching is getting more and more intense. And as you know, if you were here last week, the scribes and Pharisees who are the religious rulers, they're specifically trying to trap him. They want to kill him. 
We already know that. And now they're trying to sort of catch him on his words so they can have something to accuse him for, take him to the Romans and say he deserves capital punishment because he's committed this heresy or he said this thing, et cetera, et cetera. So Jesus is not cooperating with their plans, right? For every trap they try to set, Jesus brilliantly steps his way out and turns the trap back around toward them and invites them into life change. Like that's so amazing about Jesus is like they're trying to kill him with these traps and he's flipping them around. He goes, if you would just have eyes to see, you could have life. They intend death for him. He intends life for them. And we're going to see that again in our text. So that is the context. This is the third and final trap in uh, Mark chapter 12. And you'll see at the end of, the, of the, the text why it's the last one. So look in your Bibles. We're going to begin in verse 28 and just sort of pick it up in Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, okay, them being the other religious leaders in, in Jesus, recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? And I'll pause right there. Why is this a trap? It doesn't really seem like a trap. It seems maybe like an innocent question. There's actually more going on uh, below the surface. The scribes and Pharisees of that day had 613 laws, 613 commandments that they had found in the book of the law, in the Mosaic law, you know, the law of Moses. And it broke down this way. There were 248 positive laws. Those are the thou shalts. And there were 365 negative laws, which are the thou shalt nots. So isn't that fun? You have one negative law for every single day of the year. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Now, they believed all 613 were binding, but there was an assumption that some were kind of lighter and some were heavier, you know? So in our, our law today, you have misdemeanors and you have felonies and different, you know, you break different laws, it's, it's different punishments. And so that's what's being asked here. They're trying to put Jesus on the spot to say, hey, of all these 613, which one has the most weight? Like, which is the one that we got to really watch out not to break or the one to really make sure that we do because our life made depend upon it. Another thing going on here is they might be trying to sort of discredit him a little bit, uh, maybe trap him in his own words. They can come back and say, hey, didn't you say that such and such was the greatest law, but then didn't we hear you do this or didn't we see you do that and the other? So Jesus is going to answer them, of course, brilliantly because what they don't realize is not only does he know the word inside and out, he is the word he is the word. And so he's going to answer with the level of authority that you would expect from not just an expert in the law, but the law himself, the giver of the law. Now, Jesus' answer, we're going to find it beginning in verse 29. Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. I'm going to pause there and we'll read the second part in just a minute. Jesus is quoting here from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this is a very famous part of the Old Testament. In fact, it's probably the most quoted. I guarantee it is. This is the most quoted uh, verse from the Old Testament. Maybe the most quoted verse from the entire Bible. How do I know that? Well, this has become a prayer. And Jews, even to this day, recite this prayer twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. It's called the Shema. Shema comes from the Hebrew verb for hear. It's literally the first word of the prayer. Hear. O Israel, Shema would be the first word, and they say this even to this day. Now, the command itself is not found in the hear, O Israel part. It comes right after that. Love the Lord your God. So five words. That's the command. Everything that comes after it modifies the command. 
Okay, you follow that? So love the Lord your God, and then it says with that, with the other, with, with, etc. Now, the word with in English actually comes from a Hebrew from, it's the word from, it's from out of. So literally, it would say, love the Lord your God from out of your heart, from out of your soul, from out of your mind, and from out of your strength. The, the whole idea here, and I'm not going to take the time to break down each of those categorically, but it's the idea that you're, you're to love God with everything that you are. Your thoughts, your will, your decisions, your actions, it's everything at your core is to flow out in love toward God. And last week in, in Lloyd's message, which by, by the way was a fantastic message if you missed it, he talked about this. He, he looked ahead to this verse and he said, listen, when Jesus looked at that coin, he said, whose who's who's picture's on the coin? They said, Caesar. He says, well then give, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God the things that are his. What belongs to God when it comes to us? Everything, our hearts, our minds, our soul, our strength. That's how we're to love the Lord your God. Give back to him what is rightfully his. Is that intimidating? I hope it is, right? A little bit. It should create this like, ay, 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 that's a big command, and it, and it is. But he keeps going, all right? He doesn't let us off the hook quite yet. Verse 31, the second is this. Now the man asked him for one. Jesus is gonna say, I gotta give you two. And here's the second. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he summarizes it. There is no commandment greater than these, both of these. Now, this little formula, love God and love your neighbor, love God, love other people, it has been so kind of familiar that we sort of missed the, the brilliance of it when it was first uttered, right? This wasn't something that another rabbi had said that Jesus was borrowing. Like up to this point in time, we, there's nothing we can read in, in any other, you know, writings from the Hebrew people or scholars and Jewish scholars that would say at any point in time prior to Jesus uttering these words, had anyone summarized the entire law by saying, look, it comes down to loving God and loving people. And what's amazing about this is he takes 613 laws and he says, listen, there are these two that rise above all the others. And guess what? Of these two, there's only one word that actually really matters. Love. So all the weight of 248 things to do and, and, and 365 things not to do, he's like, listen, 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 listen. All that's important. But if you just remember one word, one word and then two focus points of that word. You are to love God and you are to love people. There's a vertical focus, there's a horizontal focus. And that's how Jesus is answering this question. This has the most weight to it. Now, one of the reasons this answer, I think, is so brilliant is because it is simultaneously freeing and challenging. Like, it's immensely freeing all the way to those commands. He just said, look, it's, it's just love. It's just love. Isn't that freeing? Like, and it, you know, you can kind of engage with me a little bit. Isn't that freeing a little bit? Yes, yes, yes. You don't have 613 things to memorize like they were memorized. Just, just one. Um, Augustine said it this way, and I found this to be helpful. Augustine said, love and do as you like. Love and do as you like. I think that's true. If you actually understand what you are to love and how you are to love, which is the rest of the sermon. We'll get there in a minute. Now, it is freeing, but it's also challenging. Why is it so challenging? Well, to get the idea of why this is challenging, I'm even gonna say impossible. It's impossible for us. That's the bad news. 
You've got to understand what love actually is. And, and I want to spend a few minutes unpacking love. And you know, you've heard other sermons that kind of go, you know, love's not a feeling, it's a choice and all these kinds of things. That, I think that only gets there part way. All right, let, let me explain what I mean. Uh, you know in English, there's only one word we use for love and in Greek, there's several. You've, you've heard this in other sermons, right? A, a lot of times. You probably know what Greek word is used or you're gonna guess which one it is. I bet you'll guess correctly. What's the Greek word you think Jesus is using here as he's quoting the Old Testament? Agape. Now, what do you know about agape? You know, what comes to your mind when you think of agape is probably, okay, that's like the purest love. That's the highest love. That's the best love. But do you know actually what's underneath agape is self-giving. It's self-sacrifice. It's unselfish. It's selfless, if you will. And interestingly about agape, it, it wasn't used apart from the New Testament very much at all. And the idea is that, that agape love is, is only godly love. It, it, that we humans, that apart from you know, God sort of transforming our heart and affections to love this kind of way, which is where we're gonna go in a minute, we can't. We can't love this way. It's actually impossible for us to love this way. Now, when, when you think about this kind of love, I don't want you to just use the paradigm of emotion and, and, and will, or you know, emotion and choice, because sometimes you hear it said, agape is not a feeling, it's not an emotion, it's not romantic love, it's, it's a selfless act and a choice, and, and, and that is true, but there has to be some kind of affection that's motivating the selfless love for it to be selfless. Let me explain what I mean. I try hard as a husband and a dad to serve my wife, Jody, and our three daughters. And honestly, if, if, I'm, if I'm real, like, going to grade myself, I'll, I'll, I'm going to give myself a, a, a barely passing grade, okay? That may be a little bit generous. On my good days, I'm pretty good at this. On my good days, I come home from work, and I'm like, okay, honey, you've been with the kids all day long. How can I help, right? That's, that's a really good day. Now, I've got to be honest. When I'm pouring myself out, most of the time, what's really happening is, man, I hope Jody thanks me for this, <laughs> Like, man, I hope my wife appreciates this. Man, I hope that my kids someday grow up, you know, and they're talking about their dad. And like, dad was always helping us. He was always serving. He wasn't one of those kind of dads that was disengaged in our life. He was one of those dads that was always involved. All right, you, you see my motivation coming out? It's like, I want some glory. You know, if I'm really honest, it's like, if I'm gonna lay my life down for my wife and my kids, I hope it gets appreciated. Now, how do you know if you're kind of loving out of this selfish motivation, okay? How do you know, know if you're serving in this way? Well, when you don't get noticed, it, it, it puts you in a rage. Right? When I don't get noticed, I'm like, I've been pouring myself out and she's gonna ask me to do another thing. And my kids are complaining after I just bought them the cotton candy. I mean, give me a break, right? We went to the rodeo last night, it's a true story. I was like, are you kidding me? I just got you the cotton candy. I took you to the stinking rodeo. Sorry if we've got rodeo fans out there. I'm not a rodeo fan. I'm like, I did it for you. I could be working on my sermon right now and I did this for you. It's complaining about this and that. Now, what happens in my heart when I'm thinking I'm a servant and then I'm treated like a servant is I get angry. I get bitter. And by the way, that's how you know if you actually are a servant is when you get treated like a servant, it doesn't bother you anymore to get treated like a servant. Who among us has pure love who among us has pure service and sacrifice to other people without getting disgruntled when they don't notice, without wanting a little thank you, without wanting a little appreciation? Is that so wrong? Well, listen, I won't say it's so wrong, but it's not agape. 
It's not unselfish, sacrificial, pouring yourself out for the good of the other person kind of love. This is very, very difficult. Now, we say this all the time. I love this, I love that, and I love the other. And for me, I can say I love college football. I love beautiful weather. I love trips to the beach, and I love Jody, my wife. Now, I hope I don't love all those the same way and with the same intensity. We throw this word around, and even in the scripture, we hear, love the Lord your God, and you know, love your neighbor as yourself. You're like, okay, I, I can do that. I can, I can add that on. Can you? I don't know. I don't know that we can actually do this. Now, this is what Jesus is getting at when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting from Leviticus 19. So Deuteronomy 6 is the first one. Leviticus 19 is the second one. And sometimes you hear this taught this way. They say, okay, you're to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And and it it gets taught this way. So what that means is you need to have high self-esteem. So you're to love God, you're to love people, and you're to love yourself. High self-esteem Look, nothing wrong with healthy self-esteem. I think that's important, right? And that's part of the work of the gospel to transform us to feel comfortable in our own skin. But that's not what this text is about. What this text is essentially saying is you naturally love yourself, right? You naturally feed yourself so you don't starve. You naturally take care of yourself. That is the measure. That is the standard by which you are to love other people. And all God's people, when they hear that, should say, ay, ay, ay. How am I to love, to agape? So let me just summarize and then move on in our text. Jesus is answering this question, but he's doing something more than just giving him an academic answer. He's digging down into the surface of the scribe's heart and by extension into our heart as well. He's saying, listen, don't be focused on 613 commands. The center of all of those is love. But listen, it's agape. It's a love that you don't have. Now, listen to the scribe's response, verse 32 and 33. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, this is interesting. Jesus didn't say anything about burnt offerings and sacrifices. Where is he going with this? Well, a couple of things, and I actually think this is positive on his part. Number one, he's recognizing that the burnt offerings and sacrifices fit into the weight of that law. And there's something here, this idea of love, that supersedes sacrifice. That's a huge deal for a scribe to realize because the sacrificial system at that time was the center of how the Jews thought what made them right with God. And he's essentially saying, okay, there's something above it. There's something beyond it. It's this agape love, agape toward God, agape toward other people. I can see how that's weightier than even the sacrificial system. That's a huge statement. So listen to how Jesus is gonna respond. He's gonna commend him. 34, when Jesus saw that he answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions, right? Like, they've had their fill. It's kind of like, man, we try to trip this guy up with with a question about the resurrection. We try to trip him up with a question about taxes. We try to trip him up with this, you know, very difficult to answer what's the greatest command, and and we can't get him. We can't get him. So they're they're giving up. They're going to find some other way to get Jesus on the cross. And of course, they will, according to the will of God, by the end of the week. Now, 
what I find so interesting as I think about this, uh, you know, Jesus creed, love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, all that's incredible, but, but this little phrase at the end, you are not far from the kingdom of God, has really given me a lot of pause this week. You know, what is Jesus saying with that? I think there's a kind of a double meaning is what I see in it. Number one, he's saying to the scribe, your heart is beginning to soften. Like you're starting to have eyes to see and ears to hear. And if you keep going in this direction with the softened heart, you're going to be entering into the kingdom of God. But secondly, I think Jesus literally means like, you're, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Like, like I am the entrance into the kingdom and like you're five feet from me. Like there's a little, you're not far. I think there's like a double meaning that's going on here. You're not far from the kingdom of God, but he stops short of saying that he's all the way there. He doesn't say you're in it. He doesn't say like, you know, your understanding has gotten you in the kingdom of God. He's saying you're still missing something, but you're on the right track. You're missing something. I thought about the religious, uh, or the, not the religious, the uh, rich young ruler you remember that text from, I don't know, four or five weeks ago? Jesus gave him an invitation to follow him. You remember this? But he goes, you got to sell all that you have. And the guy's like, man, I'm not going to do that. You kidding me? I'm rich. You don't know how much I have. I can't sell all that I have and follow you. There's something similar going on with the scribes. You're not far. Can you take that last step and actually shift your faith away from your academic intellect, oh, you scribe, and, and your re religious accomplishments, oh, you do-gooder, and can you simply just trust in me and follow me? And oh, by the way, where I'm going is a difficult place. Now, I want to use that phrase to sort of think about how this text applies to us this evening. You are not far from the kingdom of God. How might this text actually begin to sort of dig down deep and, and transform us? And I'm, I'm looking at my time and I wanna use every last second that I can to sort of bring this to the surface because I think it's so powerful. There's something profound here. I don't know if you've grasped it. I didn't until I really dug into this text pretty hard over the last couple of weeks. Now, in this text that we just read, I think there's both an incredible opportunity and an incredible challenge. All right, so the opportunity is that we would move toward the path of life, okay? It's nothing less than we would become more and more fully alive, living out our purpose as human beings. That's the opportunity. Like, that, that's what's on the table. The problem is, is it even possible for us to live out the greatest command? Is it even possible for us to agape anything, so here's what I want to do. I want to unpack three principles for application of you. And, I, and I'm just going to walk these through as quickly as I can, but I want to spend some time on them. So principle number one, your life is defined by the things you love the most. Your life, my life, is defined by the things you love the most. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. We tend to think we're defined by, you know, I don't know, our ethnicity, our intelligence, our talents, our education, our background, our families, our work ethic. We think all these things kind of make us who we are. And that's true to a degree, but at a deeper level, you're defined more by what you love the most. Let me explain what, what I mean. Um, every choice you make, everything you do is motivated by, by you loving one thing more than loving something else or some other things. Why do you go to work? 
Now, you know, maybe a few of you in the room, you love your work and you'd rather be working than like goofing off at home or watching Netflix or something. But for most of us, it's like, ah, no, no, no. If I'm really honest, I'd have a lot more fun away from work. So why do you work? Well, I may not like work all the time, but I work because I love something more than I love goofing off. You know what it is that I love? I love feeding my family. I love having food to eat. I love having a roof over my head, right? I love not being a neglectful provider. Choosing one thing. I'm loving one thing greater than I'm loving something else. Here's another example. Why do kids obey when they obey? Depending on your family, it may not, may not be that often, right? But when they obey, it's generally not because they have such pure love for God and mom and dad, right? It's why do they obey? It's because they love for their bottoms not to be pained. You know, <laughs> they, they love the lack of consequence. They don't want to be in timeout. They love their freedom more than they actually love whatever it is that they're tempted to do, right? They're, 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 they love one thing more than another. Every choice we make, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we invest our energies, the relationships that we choose, they're all governed by us making value choices. I love this over I love that. Some of you love being successful, right? And that's given you a really strong work ethic and you've achieved that. Some of you love winning and you're very competitive and you're into sports, you're into games, you're into other things, you have to live that out. Some of you love being comfortable. And so your life just kind of revolves around that. If it doesn't taste good, you're not gonna eat it. You know, if, if, if you don't want to do it, you're not really going to do it. I mean, this, I identify with a number of these. Uh, so, some of you just love feeling good. And so what, what's interesting is we start to judge each other by what we love more than other people. So in other words, if you're one of those, like you love achievement, you're driven by success, you look at somebody that loves feeling good and loves comfort and you're like, man, they're lazy. And if you love comfort, and you're hanging around someone that's just a hard-driving, high-achiever because they love success. You're just like, man, that, that, that guy just runs over people. He just rails over people. Like, he's greedy. You see how we do this? It's so interesting. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, what's most important in the law is what you love. And what I'm saying is this applies to our entire lives. What's most important in your life, what will define you? are the two or three or four things in life that you most love. Like that's literally what people are gonna talk about at your funeral. He loved his business. Man, she loved the beach. He loved Tennessee volunteer football. You know, whatever it is, like this is defining for us. So that's principle number one. And this is, by the way, this is gonna build, like this is gonna lead somewhere. Number one, your life is defined by the things you love the most. Number two, the things you love the most will always naturally be the wrong things. Dope. <laughs> Your life's defined, literally, by the things you love the most, and those things you love the most will always naturally be the wrong things. This is a problem. Now, I want you to think about this idea for a minute. You know, for, for one person to say to someone else that they're loving the wrong thing, that's a controversial statement, right? That's a value judgment. How can anyone do that? How can anyone say, I love the wrong things? The things I love are the things I love. <laughs> you can't tell me what I should love and what I shouldn't love. I think I've just named the fundamental tension in our culture right now. But actually, I'm just saying what Jesus said. Jesus said there's, there's an awful lot of things you can do and not do 
In other words, you can be motivated in a lot of different ways and make choices in a lot of different ways. There are two things that are above all others that you should love. And all other loves are lesser, are smaller, are more base than two loves. And by the way, the way I interpret this text, I think it's actually one grand love that the second flows out of. It's love of God, and then flowing out of that is love of people. You know, do you see where this is going? How can Jesus have the authority to say, love this and all the rest is a little bit of nonsense, right? How can Jesus have the authority to say, no, not all loves are put on equal playing field. You can't just go about and love whatever you want or whoever you want or do whatever you want and it's all gonna be just as okay in the end. It doesn't work that way. There's one thing that you are to love and a second that flows out of it. How can he do that? Because he doesn't just know the word, he is the word. Because he's our creator. Like he's the one person that has the right to tell you what the highest love that you should love is. And and, and now this is really important. What I want you to hear in this is not your creator just passing judgment on you because you love the wrong things. I want you to hear your creator actually calling you into joy and flourishing Because if it is true that there is one primary thing that you are created to love and a second that flows out of it, then fullness of joy and human flourishing is found in living out your prime purpose as a human being. So all other loves that are lesser than those things will not bring fullness of joy because you weren't designed for those. It's like an engineer that creates a computer program to do one thing and do it one thing well. Or, you know, a robotics guy that creates a robot. It's like, it's living out its function, its true, pure purpose when it's doing what it was created to do. And Jesus, who has authority to call this out, says, listen, you're created to love God and love people. All other loves have to fall under that or you are denying yourself of full joy and you're denying your creator of full glory. Okay, this is what the law is designed to do. Glorify God and bring us joy. Bring us into flourishing. It's very important that you see this. Now, I, I just want you to think about Adam in the garden for a minute, okay? God puts him in the garden. He says, listen, Adam, I've created this incredible creation. There's a lot of good things for you to love and a lot of good things for you to enjoy. There's beauty, there's streams and you know, waterfalls and there's this gorgeous garden and there's all these animals and they're fascinating and none of them are gonna harm you and I want you to take care of all of them, but there's only two things I'm gonna call you to love. I want you to love me. I want you to obey me and walk with me and and, and let's have a relationship together of intimacy. And I want you to love this other human being that I have created out of you so that you may love her as you love yourself, you see. You see, Adam and Eve in the garden were being called to live out what Jesus would say thousands of years later is why human beings were put here on the earth. Love God, love other people. That's where all this is rooted in. Where do we go wrong? We began elevating love of self above the other two loves. So this is what happens. Adam and Eve began to love their own autonomy more than they loved God, and so they disobeyed, right? Their son Cain, he loved his own pride more than he loved his own brother, so he killed him. The men, a couple chapters later, who built the, the, the Tower of Babel, they loved the idea of power and authority and achievement more than they loved 
the God of their fathers. And we could just keep going on and on through the course of human history until we get to 2017, May 20th, I think we are. You and me. We have elevated love of self above love of God, above love of other people. And this is our dilemma, right? Everything we naturally love on our own always goes back to self, if we're honest. My wife and I, when we were gonna get married, you know, I I know a lot of you are married, not all of you are married, and maybe some of you are gonna be getting married sometime here in the next year or two, who knows, and Here's the thing about getting married is you, you love someone, right? You, you love them to the greatest capacity that you're able at that moment to love them, all right? But you actually don't really know what it is yet to really love them for 10 years, for 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 years. You, just, you can't. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying you can't. I remember my wife and I, we were engaged and you know, we were trying to pick out a music that we would, would dance to you know, at our wedding. Um, so this was 16 years ago and there's this country song that we, we had liked, and I don't think it, I don't know how, when it was written, but it was a song by, by John Michael Montgomery called I Love the Way You Love Me. I love the way you love me. I wasn't planning on doing that. It just came out. <laughs> and so we're like, this is the song, right? And I was listening to the song and listening to the song, really loved the song. All of a sudden it dawned on me. This is the most selfish song ever written, right? But also the most honest also the most honest. Here's how the song goes. He says, I like this about you. I like this about you. I like this about you. But I love the way you love me. That's why you got married. This, this other person has something that I need. I'm lonely and they're going to solve that, right? I've always wanted a beautiful woman to find me attractive. I, I've always wanted this, this man to give me security. Like, that's why you get married. That's why you fall in love. You love the way they love you. It's how you're wired. I brought a prop. And I'm gonna start wrapping up with this prop. I know I still have one more principle to get to in, in, in no more time. I stopped by Chipotle on my way here. I love burritos. Like, and I was hungry, and I'm even more hungry now. And like, it's kind of killing me not to just take a bite, even though it would be weird in front of you. But I'm not gonna take a bite of this burrito, but I will say this, it is impossible for me to agape this burrito, okay? Why is that? Because the only value that this burrito holds for me is, is the taste and the fact that it can fill me, the fact that it can make my hunger pains disappear and it'll make me feel all better. So, you know, if I'm driving home and I don't think the sermon went that well, I'm like, at least I have a burrito. <laughs> you know, this is true. So. I'm holding in my hands this thing that I know can meet my needs and I'm starving, I'm hungry. Therefore, I cannot agape this burrito. It's impossible. It is just a thing to be consumed to me, even though I say I love it, and I do. Your only hope, this is principle three, your only hope is to be transformed by love itself. I want to unpack this for you. Jesus said to this man, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not there, but you're not far. This is one of my favorite responses of Jesus, right? It's both an invitation and it's an encouragement. And he says, just like, come, you're not far. Enter in. And most, most sermons on this text would end this way, like, go out and start loving 
Love God, love other people. Like you may have thought you've loved God, but redouble your efforts. I mean, really put you back into it. Just go love. And I just like whip you all up and send you out to, to love. It might work for a day. You might be motivated for a week. You might give a little more money. You might, you know, reach out across the neighborhood and help somebody rake some leaves. You might even share your faith with somebody. By the way, those are all really good things. But I don't think that will sustain you. I don't think that will transform your heart to love. Your only hope is to be transformed by love itself. In your fallen state, you cannot produce agape love. It is not in you. But you can give it away if you've received it. It can actually flow through you. It can't be produced by you but it can flow through you. And so this is where Jesus is going in the final week of his life. He said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And then what is he gonna do at the end of the week? What's he gonna do at the end of the week? He's gonna love that man. Like he's gonna literally pour out his life for that scribe and the 12 disciples and all the other people following him and the Roman guards and all the people of the world then and all the people of the world now and you and me. There's no way we're gonna live out this commandment to love unless we've first received the kind of love that has to pass through us. Now, this is where I wanna come back to this burrito. As long as I'm hungry, I'll never be able to do anything with this except consume it. But what if I've been filled? (laughs) What if I've just eaten a full meal and there's somebody else in the audience that's really hungry? say, here, here, I've eaten. I've been filled. Now, here's how we're gonna close our service. I'm gonna ask the band to come back out and then go ahead and start coming out. And, and in a minute, I'm gonna ask the ushers during my prayer as I close, the ushers are gonna come forward and, and you know, they're gonna have, they're, they're gonna have the, the elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. Now, what do we know about the, the bread and the wine, this little bit of cracker we've got and a little bit of grape juice we have. I mean, if you're hungry right now, that little wafer and that little drink is gonna do nothing for your physical hunger. But listen, when Jesus sat down with his disciples for their final meal, it's like he filled their bellies and then he took the bread. He said, listen, this symbolizes something that will fill you not just for five or six hours, but something that's gonna meet your deepest hunger, that's gonna meet your deepest longing, your need and your desire to be loved that's driving you to selfishly try to love other people. I'm gonna meet that need once and for all. I'm gonna meet that need by my unselfish, sacrificial love. I'm gonna agape you so you can be filled And so then they ate that bread, they ate that cup, they had no idea what it meant. He went to the cross, he died for them, he died for you and me. He was raised up later and only later, we as a church started realizing, oh my goodness, do you see what Jesus was doing? He was saying, listen, there's only one way you're gonna be able to live out the commands to love God and love other people. And that's if you first been loved. If you first first understand, I don't have to squeeze love out of other people selfishly because I've been given it. I've been filled. So eat and drink and be filled. So then you can love. This is the gospel. 
Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this love that we don't understand. And the majesty of the text and the majesty of the Word of God that would desire by the work of your Spirit to dig down underneath the selfish motivations of our heart and start moving some things around in there. And the only way, God, that I know that that men in this room are going to be able to begin unselfishly loving their wives and women in this room are going to be able to forgive and love and and, and children will be loved unselfishly and neighbors will be loved and that you will be glorified and you will be loved. The only way that's ever going to happen is if we're able down in the pit of our souls to understand that we have been unselfishly loved and we are no longer starving for love because we have been given it. And I know for some, it just doesn't feel substantive to them. Just, just to sort of say, oh, you're loved by God, you know, go out and be well. That, it doesn't feel like it's enough for them. So God, I pray that the tangible reminder of the, the cracker and the juice would actually be meaningful to them tonight. That as they taste it, that they would actually have a, a, a visceral understanding that this is to fill them. Not to physically fill their bellies, but to symbolically remind them that they've actually been filled in ways that can then begin to flow out. And that can only be a work of your spirit, not words of a preacher. So would you do that, spirit, even as we take the elements now? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. As the plate is passed, take the cracker, take the juice, just hold on to it. We're going to celebrate this together in a minute after this song.
is no greater love. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I don't know if you've ever thought about that last phrase. It's a little bit morbid. It's a morbid way to end the Lord's table. Didn't he rise again? Yeah, he rose again. But if he had not died, if he had not made that sacrifice of his body and his blood, we, we couldn't be filled. We couldn't have been loved. We couldn't have been forgiven. We couldn't have been united back with God. And so as I close this, I want to pray for you. And I'd ask you if you would stand to your feet as I pray. And I want to pray a prayer of benediction on you. So Father, as I pray for this body, these men and women of Fellowship Bible Church, I pray that they would know your love. I pray that they would not just in their minds understand it, but in some way that only the power of the Holy Spirit can do, that it would begin to dig down and then set them free from some things that they actually need to be set free from, from some insecurities, from some men and women that just don't actually feel like they have been loved at all and they're starving to be loved and I pray Father that even the bread and the cup would be such reminders for them that you see and you know and you care and you lay down your life for them they don't have to keep striving to keep all the commands they can simply let your love flow through them back to you and out to other people. And so that's how I close this prayer, that that would be true of the men and women of Fellowship Bible Church, that they would love you and love others with all their hearts they would love you and that they would love others as they love themselves. In the great name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. Go with God. I hope you stay dry as you travel home, and we'll see you again soon.